I don't know if we're going to get out early or we're going to go way long. Um, <clears throat> it, I'm not as surprised as you are to be up here. Um, thank goodness. On Friday, Roy, we'd, we'd had some plans for this weekend, and Roy had texted Friday morning and said, uh, let's postpone this stuff. I'm not feeling good enough to do it. And then he sends me another text and says, maybe you want to have a sermon in your back pocket when you show up Sunday. And then yesterday morning, you know, and I've, he said that to me before, and most of the time I don't even bother bringing one because I know he's going to be here. Um, yesterday morning he says, you better move that to your front pocket. And so you're going to be praying for him that he recovers because if he's not here, he's probably pretty sick. Am I right, Brandon? <laughs> he doesn't. You were having to scoop snow, weren't you? <laughs> so, in any case, that's where we're at. And uh, you, what I say this morning will be a great peril to myself because those who have been coming to my ABF class are going to wonder how I can say so much in such a short amount of time or cover so much ground that, you know, this, some of what you're going to hear has taken me nine months in ABF. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And the older I get, the more it just becomes cemented in my mind. It becomes a part of who I am. Context is king. If we don't know the context, we're going to end up going down the wrong path. It doesn't matter what you read. And part of the problem we have in our culture, our society today, is we've divorced ourselves from the context from our history. And we try to interpret everything through the lens of what we're living right now or in the last 10 years without trying to figure out when our country was founded, this was the way the world was. Scripture, when we read Scripture, if we do not understand the context the history, the audience to whom it was written, we're going to end up in the wrong place. We can't read into it where we're at today and try to interpret it as such. And so as you read the letters of First and Second Corinthians, it's important to know that the town of Corinth was perhaps the wealthiest city in the world in the first century. And I don't have a map. You can look in the back of your Bibles or Google it uh, to see where the city of Corinth lies, but it was on an isthmus between Greece and the rest of Europe. It was about four miles wide, this patch of land, and so there was harbors on either side and, and the ships would come in and either the goods were unloaded and carted across either to the city or through the city to the other side to be shipped elsewhere. Or the ships were dragged across land on skids and put back to sea on the other side. 
all trade from south and Greece up into Europe and vice versa came through Corinth. It was crazy the amount of wealth that was passing through that city on a daily basis, the amount of money that was sticking to the hands of those who lived there. There was no richer place on earth. What's more, on the highest point of the city, they boasted the temple of Diana. And daily there were feasts made to, the, to her, this goddess, or to the other idols, false gods that were being worshipped. But what's more, it wasn't just a place to go and feast and worship an idol. It was a place of gross sexual immorality. Corinth was so known for its sin that even the Romans were put off by it. There was a saying of, in the day that we would go sin like a Corinthian. Now considering Rome and Ephesus and Antioch and many other of these trade cities, for someone to, for that to be the common phrase, we're going to go sin like a Corinthian, it sets them apart. What's more, the Greek philosophers would refer to the prostitutes as Corinthian girls. It was a wicked, sinful place. And it's here where Paul arrives and spends 18 months establishing Christ's church. At the end of 18 months, he moves on. You read about his journey in the book of Acts, but he hears of the troubles and the sin that's going on within the church, sin that's being tolerated. So he writes a letter that is lost to history, and in that letter, some of the things he said were misunderstood, misinterpreted, misapplied. And so then he writes 1 Corinthians trying to explain, this is what I was really meaning. This is what I really meant for you to understand. You can sum up the book of 1 Corinthians with three words. Cut it out. Knock it off. Don't do that. After sending that letter, things don't entirely get cleaned up. He writes another letter. And then he makes what's called a painful visit in which he must have been knocking heads. And he still didn't get the result he wanted, so he writes what he refers to as the tearful letter, begging them to return to the truth of the gospel, to forsake the false teaching that's risen up, to embrace him as their apostle. Because somewhere along the line, Paul had begun to be considered a shyster, a con man. There was lots of these individuals that passed through Corinth. It was part of the culture of the world at the time. You kind of, if you were smart or a good communicator, you could kind of travel around and spout your philosophy and maybe somebody would support you while you're there. You can make some money at it and then move on. And, and Paul was began to be considered as one of these guys that were just coming through. 
with something new, something different. Now we're on to the next thing. And so he writes 2 Corinthians. After sending his tearful letter and sending Timothy, or Titus, Titus, thank you, Ted, sending Titus ahead with the letter, things appear to be on the mend. The relationship between Paul and this church seems to be what had been almost completely severed was starting to to knit once again. And so he writes 2 Corinthians in hopes of further restoring this relationship, reconciling himself to the Corinthians. Not that Paul's done anything wrong. And he spends much of his time in 2 Corinthians reminding them that his life is not something that is foreign or way out of the ordinary for the Christian existence. His life is a model of the Christian walk. Because one of the, the, the false teachings that, that had crept in, and it was due to the culture and what they were so used to seeing all around them in Corinth, was that you know, they were fabulously wealthy. They were rich. They lacked for nothing. They needed nothing. And so somewhere along the line, they began to buy into this health and wealth and prosperity gospel that as a follower of Christ, you'll never be in want, you'll never be in hurt, you'll never be in pain. And you look at Paul, he is not what we expect of an apostle. He's slight, he's frail, he's sick. He's not doing miraculous things every time he turns around. He's not this impressive speaker, and which, is, which is interesting because every place he went before Corinth, he got run out of town because he was such an impressive communicator. And when he came to Corinth, he kept his head down, and instead of preaching on the street corners, he started with individuals and built the church that way so as not to draw attention to himself. So in all of this, Paul is trying to draw them back to the truth of the gospel. And my life is not an outlier. My life is a model. And he starts in chapter 1, and he goes through, and he's talking about his afflictions. And the word affliction that he uses could also be translated burden. And it's kind of this broad term that can cover anything from a hangnail or a paper cut to a torturous death. Afflictions are part of life. But what he says is, in my afflictions, I experience comfort. And he's trying to draw the Corinthians back to truth is, apart from hurt, apart from pain, apart from trouble, apart from afflictions, there is no comfort from God. Apart from the trouble, there is no deliverance. Apart from Christ's death on the cross, there is no hope of resurrection. And in chapter 6, he continues this line of thought in verse 1, saying, working together with him, Working together with God then, we, the apostles as a group, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. He's writing a church, he's writing to a group of believers, and yet he refers to them as unbelievers. 
He refers to them as being unregenerate. I'm appealing to you, don't hear the gospel that I brought and reject it. Don't leave it behind. Don't walk away from it. Don't, don't follow something else because you don't like what this is. Don't receive it in vain. In verse 2, he quotes, I can get rid of my gum, I forgot to do that. In verse 2, he quotes Isaiah, chapter 49, verse 8. He says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. And then he brings us into the present. He said, this is what God said. This is what Isaiah wrote. This is what he was prophesying was happening. And then he draws it into the present. He ties it to Jesus Christ. And he says, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The time is now. It's time for you to receive this and to live it and to run with it. In Isaiah 49 and throughout the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is crying out to God. It's, it's this heavy lament. It's like, God, why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this? I know why we're being persecuted. I know why we're being conquered. I know why we're being pressured. But God, all the same. And God responds to Isaiah. And he says, in a favorable time I listen to you and in a day of salvation I have helped you. And what Paul is saying, this is the time. This is your chance to respond to the gospel. This is your chance to respond to what you have learned and what you've heard about Jesus Christ. Today's the day. In our understanding of time is quite different than God's. Ours is finite, it's limited. <laughs> everything has a beginning, everything has an end. And as God works in time, He works when it's pleasing and acceptable for him to work. And I want him to work when it's most convenient and least stressful for him to work. I want him to hear Roy so I get a text this morning and I can just enjoy it down here. But God is telling Isaiah, hey, the day is coming. And Paul is saying, hey, the day is now. There's a time when God accepts and hears the lament of his people and shows them his favor. And Paul is drawing this prophecy and said, Jesus Christ came and he lived and he died and he was resurrected. And today is the day, now is the time. God has fulfilled his promise. What's more, he's also referring to the fact that Jesus is not just this good teacher, this moral example, this person we follow because he seems to have his act together. 
He is the Savior. He is the object of God's divine intervention. Acts 4.12 There is no other name under heaven given to men whereby we must be saved. There's no other option. Jesus himself said it in John 14.6 I am the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Church, you Corinthians, you're chasing the wrong Jesus. Now is the time. Receive the grace that's been given you. In verse 3, Paul writes, we, and again referencing the apostles, he's trying to use the, the collective weight. Let me, let me define apostle, just thought maybe, just so we're all on the same page. An apostle was one who had seen the resurrected Christ, but it goes beyond that because there were hundreds, maybe thousands who saw Jesus after his resurrection, but the apostle was one who had been called by Christ personally, to go into ministry and proclaim the gospel. And you can say, well, how was Paul called? Because he was a Pharisee and he wasn't one of the disciples. And remember the road to Damascus? That's where Paul received his call. That's where he was called into ministry by Jesus Christ himself. And so Paul is using the collective weight of the other apostles with himself. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. We put no obstacle. When he was in Corinth, he took no money. He worked for his living. He was a tent maker. And as such, and something I've just come to realize in the last month or so, or a couple months, was as a tent maker, he was working with goat skin primarily. As a Pharisee, as a Jew, to work with a dead animal would be to defile him and preclude him from worshiping in the temple. He defiled himself and his cultural background in order to win the Corinthians. He put aside which had been so important to him for so much of his life in order to proclaim the gospel. I put no obstacle in anyone's way. Ravi Zacharias, he says, <clears throat> he says that our greatest apologetic is our life. And the art of apologetics is removing barriers on the path to the cross. And while it's easy to look around and blame others, <laughs> you know, if they had their act together, then it'd be a lot easier for me to tell someone about Christ or it'd be a lot easier for them to see Christ. Or, and the truth is, it's my life that I need to be worried about. It's how I'm living my life. And how does my life look different? If my entertainment choices, if my speech, my language, if my reactions, my responses, 
if the way I treat people is no different than my pagan neighbor down the road, I am the greatest obstacle on the path to the cross. Paul is reminding this church, we removed every obstacle. We didn't want to do anything that would cause you to get tripped up or reject the message. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance. And as he comes in here, there's three words that he uses to describe. Now, if you've got New American Standard, you'll argue with me on one of these. But it's the three words, the, the, the three prepositions here, by, back up, in, by, and through. And Paul says, by, in, by great endurance, in, and these are the circumstances that are pressuring him and his work as an apostle. As a follower of Christ, these are the things that we can expect in afflictions and hardships. could also be translated tight spots. Paul was forever being put in a tight spot for the sake of the gospel. And calamities, and you can make the, the argument those first three happened to everybody. You can't really help it. We all face affliction and hardships. Calamities come. But then it gets a little more personal with beatings, imprisonments, riots. These are a little more a lot more personal, directed at an individual in hopes of being, making them quiet or discouraging them or running them off. And then he ends with the last three, which are unique to those in ministry, to those who have been called, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. These are the pressures that I face from without. And Paul was working and he was doing things for the church and for the sake of the church that nobody could ever see. And yet if he hadn't been doing those things, it would have shown up. It would have been obvious in their absence. Sleepless nights. As you read in chapter 1, Paul goes on to Troas, and he's supposed to be doing, hoping to do ministry there, and he can't because he's so consumed with worry over what's happening in Corinth. He's so consumed with worry over what is happening in the church and how their relationship has been fractured. Sleepless nights and hunger. Now, granted, that's actual physical hunger, but also He's living without, he's doing without the necessities of life in order to bring the gospel, in order to live out the gospel, in order to obey Christ and his calling. And the question that I had this week, I continue to have, you can mull it over, but what is it, you know, we expect of our pastors. 
Paul was being discredited because he wasn't this mighty specimen of health. Paul was being discredited because of how difficult his life was. Paul was being discredited because he wasn't the biggest, bestest, greatest, most effective communicator in their opinion. And yet he's saying, and despite all these things, these are the things I'm doing. This is how I'm enduring. This is how I'm pers- persevering. What do we want or expect from our pastors? Do we expect too much? The unspoken, unwritten expectations that are placed upon them. And some of those are good. It's a high calling. But many are unreasonable. I'm not pointing, I've got nothing specific in mind. It's just a reminder for me to be quick to extend grace, to not assume the worst. To look for the best. In verse 6, Paul moves, he changes the preposition, he goes from in these afflictions, hardships, trials, labors, sleepless nights, to by, and this is the how. He's moving from the circumstances to this is how I endure, this is how we make it happen. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God. This is how I endure. Endurance and perseverance is the mark of the true believer. When life is difficult, we don't throw in the towel or tap out. When life is overwhelming, We don't throw up our hands and say, all right, I didn't sign up for this. I'm on to the next thing. We endure, we persevere, and how? By the Holy Spirit. It's through the Holy Spirit we endure with purity. And again, he's writing to the Corinthian church. They're surrounded by sin. They're probably neck deep in sin. They're coming out of lives in which they were overwhelmed with sin. We persevere in purity, not just a devotion to God, but a moral excellence. We endure by knowledge, not just what I know, but who I know, a knowledge of God Almighty and His Word. We endure by patience, a long-suffering, a, a, a tolerance of others and their weaknesses and their failings. We endure by kindness, and I don't think you can be kind if you're not patient. I don't know if I've ever met somebody, an impatient person who was also kind. I 
I'm not going to think about it very long, but maybe you can point somebody out. It doesn't come to mind. But we do that by the Holy Spirit. They're only possible through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. These are not things I possess in and of myself. Not to the degree I need to endure. Not to the degree I need to persevere. In verse 7, he continues the thought, By truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, He changes prepositions through, in is the circumstance, by is the how we do it, through, he contrasts what you can see with what we can't see. He contrasts with what everybody's looking at versus what the follower of Christ is hoping for. And he's dealing with the church that is looking at him saying, there's no way you're an apostle because your life is way too hard. God wouldn't do that to one of his own. And again, he emphasized that through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. There's a little bit of personal stuff there, but he's going back to the cross. Christ was dishonored and slandered and going to the cross in order to receive honor and praise on the other side. The life of the apostle mirrors the life of Christ. The life of the believer is to mirror the life of both. We are treated as imposters and yet are true. He's being treated, he's being accused of being a shyster but I'm true I've been honest I've not been deceptive as unknown yet well known as dying and behold we live earlier in his letter he says I carry about in my body the death of Christ knowing that one day I will be resurrected the final deliverance will come We're dying, but we live. And this whole book has been one about Paul going back and emphasizing that our salvation, our sanctification, the work of becoming like Christ, it's both a position as well as a process. I think I've said that from up here before, maybe not. I've said it enough in ABF that it's become who I am. It's a position and a process. The moment we repent, we give our lives to Christ, we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, we're given the guarantee of life to come, we are declared righteous. God sees us as righteous. That's the position. But we're also in process. I spend the rest of my life becoming what Christ has declared me. And that's what Paul, we are known yet unknown. Where did I go? We are treated as ambassadors yet are true, as unknown yet well known, as dying and behold we live. And so I've been declared righteous. I have a position of life, but I'm still getting there, awaiting the final 
resurrection, that final day in which I received the new body. And apart from the suffering, there is no hope of this. The Corinthians wanted all the good while saying, ah, this over here, this stinks. You can have that, Paul. We're, we're, <laughs> we're going to stay here. And Paul is emphasizing to them, apart from the hurt and the pain, the affliction, the hardship, the sleepless nights, all this stuff, there is no comfort, there is no deliverance, there is no hope. This means nothing if this isn't really bad. As punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Philippians 4 verse 4, Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord Always, again, I will say, rejoice. And that's not because life is so awesome, I can't possibly find anything to complain about. It's because of the hope and the comfort and the deliverance that comes from Christ. That even in my hurt and my trouble and my tr trials, I have the hope. I experience the comfort and the deliverance in small ways, knowing that the big comfort and the great deliverance is coming. We're as poor, we're, we're as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. This is what you see is not the end product. What I am doing now, what I have now, is not what's waiting for me if I persevere and endure. Stop looking at what you can see and start looking ahead. And in verses 11, 12, and 13, Paul kind of ties up his thought. And it, over the past couple years, you know, you, Paul has the reputation of being abrupt and blunt and hard-nosed. And these three verses here are why he has that reputation. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. He's saying, listen, I've bared my soul. There's nothing about me you do not know. I've lived a transparent life. If you don't know me, it's because you don't want to know me. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us. We're not keeping you. I'm not keeping you at arm's length. But you are restricted in your own affections. He says, it's you that are holding me back. It's you that have pushed me away. It's you that have rejected me. This is your deal. And what Paul has done in 1 Corinthians, over and over and over again, saying, knock it off, cut it out, don't do that. He picks up a little bit here. He says, this is your deal. And who among us doesn't love it when somebody comes and sticks their finger in our chest This is your problem. Get over it. Maybe I'm the only one. 
Maybe I'm the only one that experiences that. I don't know. But Paul is saying, this is your deal. We have done everything. We have brought the truth. We came with the gospel and you have left it. You've rejected it. You're following false teachers. Knock it off. It's not so much. 1 Corinthians was all about behavior. Quit doing that. Change what you're doing. And 2 Corinthians is an appeal to stop listening to the false teachers. Return to the truth. Verse 13, in return, I speak as to children. (laughs) I'm going to treat you like little kids. Widen your hearts also. Open your hearts to me. Give me a chance. Be objective. As a church as a local body of believers. What do we expect of ourselves? What do we expect of our leaders? What do we want for ourselves? What are we willing to extend to our leaders? As individuals, what lies are we embracing? Maybe we don't even recognize them for lies as of yet. How are we waiting? How are we enduring? How are we persevering? Are we enduring? Or for all intents and purposes, have you thrown in the towel? Say, you know what, this just, this is not at all what I signed up for. And I would say to you what Paul says to the Corinthians. We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Persevere in it. Endure in it. Allow your life to be evidence of God's grace and transforming power. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, as in boy.org or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.